Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series in the book of Haggai, and here James Jordan will be in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. As always, we do invite you to take a look down there at the links in the show notes. Specifically, sign up for the Theopolis app if you have not done so already. And also be sure to check out this upcoming online course that we have with Peter Lightheart, which will run for three weeks and will be about how to read well. For our upcoming events and for everything Theopolis related, you can find links down there in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Jim Jordan discussing the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Last week we were in Haggai chapter 1. This week we'll start into Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai is next to the last book and third from the last book in the Old Testament. So you turn to Matthew and you flip back to Haggai. Now remember last time in chapter 1, the people had been prevented from building the temple when they'd initially started out years before. So work on it is stopped because of political opposition. Now there was a change in the monarchy in Persia, which revoked the decrees of the previous king, and they could have started once again to build a house. However, they didn't get back to work right away and continued to spend their time uh, working on the cultural mandate. And there's nothing wrong with working on the cultural mandate, provided it is in the proper context of having worked on the house of God first and foremost. And so they had not been prospered in their agriculture and other economic endeavors. And the Lord came and rebuked them for that and then stirred them up to commit themselves to begin rebuilding the house of the Lord. Now, in chapter 2, we have further prophecies along this line. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Notice the time, the Sabbath month. 21st day, which was the last, or actually the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Prophecy is addressed to the civil magistrate, to the head of the church, and to the people. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, Emmanuel, God with us, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord who has all the armies and powers at his disposal can enable this to be done despite apparent insurmountable opposition. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. That's not actually what it says in Hebrew, but we'll get back to that. The sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice how the expression Lord of hosts comes up over and over again. This, as we saw last time, is the word for God which is used at this stage in history because the people were few in number, oppressed by enemy powers, and they needed the reassurance that God was the God of armies, the God who had angelic hosts at his disposal, the one who was enthroned above the cherubim, enthroned above all the angels, and thus was well able to defend and protect them and enable them to do their work in the midst of opposition. Now, to understand this passage, we're going to have to do a lot of background work in the earlier parts of the Old Testament. Let me show you in verse 5 where the problems are. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Now, what does that mean? What's the promise that he made when they came out of Egypt? 
how does that compare with the spirit abiding in their midst? Do you remember when the Jews came out of Egypt, any promise that the Lord gave about the spirit being in their midst? I don't think so. Moreover, what does this business about coming out of Egypt and the spirit abiding in their midst, what does that have to do with building the temple? Why bring this up in the middle of a passage about building the temple? We can understand, take courage and build the temple, but then he refers to a promise made when they came out of Egypt, a promise which there's no cross-reference to. The promise is, my spirit will abide in your midst. No cross-reference to that. And then he says, it is yet only a little while and I'm going to be shaking the heavens and the earth and I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth and fill this house with glory. Well, you can see some connection there. The temple will be adorned by the wealth of the nations. But again, what does that have to do with Egypt? Now, you might begin to make some connections now. But in order to understand this, we're going to have to go back to the book of Exodus and look in some detail at how the first house of God was built. Then you'll understand the relationship between the spirit and the promise. So let's go back, okay, to Exodus chapter 25. Now, the other thing that comes up in this passage, which we don't usually think about and is not clearly understood in the churches, is the connection between the Sabbath and the house of God. Notice that this prophecy is given on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which comes in the Sabbath month. So there's a tremendous connection between the Sabbath and house building here in Haggai. It's a connection that the Bible makes many other places. But we want to see the foundation for this in Exodus when the law was given the first time. In Exodus 25 through 31, we have God's ordering of how the tabernacle was to be built. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution you are to raise from them, gold, silver, bronze, etc. So they're told to bring their gifts as a contribution to build the tabernacle. Then over the next several chapters, the tabernacle is described in detail. And then we come to chapter 31. And I will read chapter 31 because it will shed a lot of light on Haggai chapter 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of workmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat upon it, all the furniture of the tent, the table also and its utensils, and the pure gold lampstand with its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering also with its utensils, the labor and its stand, the woven garments as well, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments for his sons with which to carry on the priesthood, the anointing oil as well, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. Now we begin to see a connection. The promise is... We're still not quite sure about that, but there's a connection between the Holy Spirit and the building of the tabernacle, the first tabernacle. The Holy Spirit was given a special measure to this architect and master craftsman to oversee the building of the tabernacle. And now they have to build the temple again. The Holy Spirit is once again given for the purpose of building the temple. Then it says in verse 12, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you... Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, and whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. That is, excommunicated. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So, in that way, the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased and was refreshed. Notice how in this general prophecy concerning the tabernacle, it ends up with a very strong statement about the Sabbath, which doesn't seem to be immediately related to the tabernacle and to the house. Now, turn forward in your Bible just a couple of pages. And you'll come to Exodus 35. 
Now, Exodus 35 through 39 goes right back over the tabernacle a second time, only this time it's Moses telling the people how to build it, and it's a description of what Bezalel and Aholiab did in building it. So first of all, God tells them how to build it, and then Moses comes to the people and tells them how to build it, and they build it. And the description is given twice, only the description is given pretty much in reverse order. We won't take time to look at that, but God sets it out, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then the second passage where it describes them building it, it goes G, I can't even do the alphabet backwards, but it goes backwards. That's called chiastic order. So let's look at chapter 35. Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do, for six days work may be done. But on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it to the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, etc. Again, the connection between the Sabbath and the house. Strong connection there. Connection between rest and worship. Very strong in these passages. Now, we'll just have to set that in our minds that there is established a strong connection between the Sabbath and the house of the Lord, and then look at the connection between God's house and our houses. Because in the Bible there's a parallel between the house of God and the house in which God's people live. And that parallel is established in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called Tabernacles because just as God dwelled in a tabernacle, so the people were to build each one of them an individual tabernacle to dwell in during this feast. And there's a strong connection between the individual tabernacles that they build and the tabernacle that the Lord dwells in. Just as in Haggai 1 and 2, there's a connection between the houses that they build and the house, the permanent house that they build for the Lord to live in. Tabernacle just means tent. It's temporary dwelling. In the Feast of Tabernacles, all the people made temporary dwellings to live in. So as we're trying to fill in lots of background for Haggai 2, let's look at Leviticus 23. Let's get as much background as we can, and then we can understand the passage much better. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 33. Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th, of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. And then skipping down to verse 39... On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day, Sabbath rest, and a Sabbath rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Stress on the Sabbath here, you see. You shall live in booths or tabernacles for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now let's make some connections here. Later on in the Bible, when the temple is built, it's described, and the walls of the temple all around were patterned with a pattern on the wall. And the pattern was a cherubim and a palm tree, and a cherubim and a palm tree, a cherubim and a palm tree all around. So that the entire house of God is an environment encircled by trees and palm branches. Now this connects back to the Garden of Eden, in which man lived by the brooks of water, surrounded by trees, and under the protection, or under trees. Now, we see a connection between the Garden of Eden 
and the tabernacle and the temple. And then there's a further connection to these booths that the people were supposed to live in. Because what they were to do was to take the branches off of trees and make a little tent or booth to live in for seven days. It's like camping out. And that's exactly what it's said to be. Just as they camped out in the wilderness and the Lord camped out along with them in his tent, so they were to camp out in tents of their own. Now, they had more professional and ornate tents in which to live most of the time, but at least one week out of the year, during the Sabbath month, they were to dwell in these little individual tents or tabernacles or booths made out of the branches of leafy trees and willows of the brook. You have to use your imagination a little bit, but if you see a picture of this in your mind, you can see the connection back to the Garden of Eden. Now, more is said about the Feast of Tabernacles in Numbers 29. And we have to get everything connected with the Feast of Tabernacles in our mind before we can understand Haggai 2, because it happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. If the Bible tells you when something happened and it connects up to the calendar, you have to notice very carefully the relationship between the calendar and what's said and done on that day. Numbers 29, verse 12. Then on the fifteenth day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, and you shall observe a feast of the Lord for seven days. And you shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one year old, which are without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of a measure for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two lambs, and a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering, its grain offering, and its libation. Then on the second day, twelve bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one year old, without defect in their grain offering, etc. Verse 20. Then on the third day, eleven bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, etc. Verse 23. Then on the fourth day, ten bulls. Verse 26. Then on the fifth day, nine bulls. Verse 29. Then on the sixth day, eight bulls. Verse 32, then on the seventh day, seven bulls. Now, if you add those up, they come to seventy. Seventy bulls. Verse 35, on the eighth day you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, without defect, their grain offerings and libations for the bull, for the ram, and for the lambs. By the number according to the ordinance, one male goat for a sin offering, besides a continual burnt offering, its grain offering, its libation. So, 70 bulls, that's the thing to notice here. All the other sacrifices have meanings, but they're not peculiar to the Feast of Tabernacles particularly. But the 70 bulls are. Now, the number 70 connects back to Genesis 10, where the nations of the world are listed, and they're 70 in number. Whenever the number 70 occurs in the Bible, it speaks of all the nations of the world. Now, if you'd like to see how this is portrayed in the Bible, why Israel is offering 70 bulls. Look back at Exodus chapter 15, verse 27. And the answer to the question why they would offer 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world is that Israel as a whole is a mediator between God and the nations. If the nations want to come to the Lord, they have to come to Israel. Remember Naaman the Syrian. He had to come to Israel to be cleansed of his leprosy. In the New Testament, you have all these God-fearing Gentiles. They have had to come to the house of Israel to receive the truth, though they take it back with them. Israel, then, is placed as a light on a hill, a city set on a hill. And Jerusalem, of course, is the city set on a hill. It is the light set on a bushel. When Jesus refers in Matthew 5 to a city set on the hill, he's referring to Jerusalem, which is a light to the nations. And Israel was to mediate between God and the nations, and that is symbolically set forth in Exodus 15, verse 27, when Israel came out of Egypt, it says, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. It doesn't say there were some springs of water and a lot of date palms. That's the thing to notice. The Holy Spirit could have said there were several springs of water and a lot of date palms, but the Holy Spirit didn't say that. He says there are 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. Now, again, you have to visualize this. First, visualize the Garden of Eden, a spring of water coming up, flowing around and watering all these trees. Then visualize this place, 12 springs of water watering all of these trees. What makes the trees grow? The water. How many trees are there? There are 70 of them for the 70 nations of the world. How many springs of water are there? 
12 for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, unless we can learn to think in the symbolic structures that the Bible itself uses, you miss this. Commentators say, well, isn't it interesting? They came to Elam, and there happened to be 12 springs of water, and there happened to be 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters, and then they tell you to look at the map, and they tell you where Elam was. But that is useless information. Why does the Holy Spirit bother to record this? Why not say they came to Elam and camped there? Why not say there were springs of water and date palms there, so there was stuff to drink and stuff to eat? It doesn't read that way. A specific notice is given to the number structure. The 12 springs of water feeding the 70 date palms. Now, you are free to disagree with me if you want, but that is one more symbol of how Israel relates to the nations. Similarly, they offer 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world, covering their sin and keeping the world going until Christ would come and die for the sins of the world. Now let's take one more passage which shows us about the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's look at Nehemiah 8. And this simply gives us an example of how the feast was celebrated. Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 13. It's on page 694 of the True Bible. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. They never kept this law. Isn't that interesting? Never. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law every day, from the first day to the last day. You see, these feasts were Bible conferences. It's kind of an inescapable concept, I think. In the churches today, all these fundamentalist churches in the summer have Bible conference where they all go away from their homes and they go out in the woods and they live in cabins and they have Bible conference every day. Now, that's almost exactly what the Lord ordered Israel to do at the Feast of Tabernacles, and yet they don't see it as connecting to the Old Testament. And yet people almost instinctively do this kind of thing. They want to get away from the normal run of life, have a simplified lifestyle, and have a Bible conference. That pattern is everywhere. It's not something that the fundamentalists looked in the books of Moses and decided they would imitate the Feast of Tabernacles. It didn't grow up that way. It just grew up. And yet look how similar it is. Now, one other thing on the Feast of Tabernacles to see just how it was a Bible conference is in Deuteronomy 31. And this will be the last thing we look at as background before we turn back to Haggai 2. You were wondering when we get back to Haggai 2. One other thing to keep in mind, Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 9. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and women and children, and the alien who is in your town, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord their God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law. And their children, who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land where you are about to cross over the Jordan to possess it. So every seven years there was a big covenant renewal ceremony where the law was ceremonially read and the people pledged allegiance to it once again. But that pattern, of course, was in a lesser kind of a way. There was always Bible study at every Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we have three things to keep in mind about the Feast of Tabernacles, three or four. One is that it's highly connected with the Sabbath because it shows up in the seventh month. The second is that it's concerned with the house of God and with the individual houses of the people, which are models or copies of the house of God. 
The third thing is that it's closely connected with the nations of the world. All the nations of the world. And the fourth thing is it's closely connected to the law of God and a Bible study. So let's go back to Haggai 2. You see, when Haggai wrote this, he wrote it to people who already knew all that. Haggai 2. On the 21st of the seventh month, that's not the eighth day, but the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, but right at the end, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and to the leftovers of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now this prophecy is just a few days after the prophecy we looked at last week, and the people have not had time to build the temple, but they have laid the foundation. In fact, they laid the foundation 17 or so years earlier. And there are still some people around who remember what the former temple looked like, and it's obvious to them you can't build a house larger than its foundation. You can't build a house stronger than its cornerstone. So if you want to build a big house, you have to have a big, strong cornerstone, and you have to have a big foundation. If you're going to build a little house, you have a smaller cornerstone. By the way, a cornerstone sets the directions of the house, this way and that way. That's why Christ is the cornerstone. He sets out the directions and the dimensions. A big cornerstone gives you a big house. A little cornerstone gives you a little house. Christ is the cornerstone. He sets the directions and he sets the dimensions. But it was obvious that it wasn't going to be a very big house. And so the people who remembered Solomon's temple were upset. But they weren't just upset about that. They had read the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and just a few years before, Ezekiel had been prophesying. And they had prophesied that the temple, when it was rebuilt, was going to be huge. The temple in Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, is the size of a mountain. It takes up the whole of the top of Mount Sinai. It's vast. Of course, it's symbolic. But they were expecting something really huge to be built. And now there's just this little teeny weeny temple being built, which is hardly much of anything at all. Doesn't it seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, it's important to understand that because none of these temples were the final temple, were they? They were only prophetic of Jesus Christ, who was the final temple, and in union with him were part of that temple. So... The fact that it was small made it symbolic, and yet because their eyes were not open to the fact that the temple was merely symbolic of Christ, of the Messiah, and of the kingdom to come in the new age, they expected it to be big and glorious. But this was not going to be a real big, glorious temple. It was going to be adequate, but not glorious. But the Lord encourages them. He says in verse 4, Take courage, Zerubbabel. Remember, they are frightened all the time by all these enemies around them. Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, Emmanuel, I am in your midst, declares the Lord of hosts. As for my promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, so do not fear. Again, they were fearful. Now, what was the promise made when they came out of Egypt? We haven't even come to that yet. But now let's look and see what it is. The promise is made in Exodus 3 and verse 12. So here's the promise. And we've got to make this connection here. Or we won't understand Haggai 2. As for the promise I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. That's an ellipsis. There are a lot of things left out in the equation. What do we have to do to fill it in? Exodus 3 and verse 12. Let's start in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord said, Certainly I will be with you. Now that's exactly what Haggai says, isn't it? I am with you, Emmanuel. In fact, that's God's name. I am who am. I am with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will institute a theocracy. No. That's not the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. What's the sign? The sign is when they come out of Egypt, they will worship God at the mountain. Now, in order to worship God, they have to build a house to worship him with. 
and the spirit is given to build a house. Now, what kind of house is it? Well, it is characteristically, according to the Lord himself, a house of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer. Now, it's also, in a sense, the throne room of a theocracy, but it is first and foremost a house of prayer because, as we've said before, the activity of special worship is the central or foundational activity in the kingdom, and all other theocratic activities flow out from that. One comes into the throne room of God and worships him and receives direction from him, and then one goes out to build a theocracy. First things first. You don't see Moses contesting with Pharaoh over the fact that the Jews were enslaved. Now, the Jews should not have been enslaved, but that wasn't the pointed issue. What Moses goes to Pharaoh and says is, let my people go that they may go three days' journey into the wilderness and have a feast. The point at issue is special worship. Now, everything else flows from that, and Pharaoh knew it. Pharaoh knew that if he allowed them to worship their God, he would have to recognize the law of their God. And if he allowed them the law of their God, he would have to allow them to develop a culture around worship of that God and the law of that God. And so Pharaoh knew what too many theonomists tend to forget, that everything flows out of who you worship. And the activity of special worship is determinative of everything else. Now, our forefathers fought over that too. The Puritans did not fight the Anglicans over the issue of theocracy. They fought it over the issue of worship over the imposition of prayer books containing material they thought should not be in the prayer book. Now, we use a prayer book here, and some type of imposition of worship is inevitable. Somebody picks the hymns. I've heard people say, well, I don't believe in having worship imposed by somebody on top. Well, that means that the elders can't even pick the hymns because your conscience might be offended by one of the hymns. So you don't go along with that. No, there's always some imposition of worship forms. But the Puritans said this worship is wrong in its form and the imposition is too tight. You don't allow any flexibility. But they fought over the issue of worship. Now, that is the connection into Haggai because the order is you shake the nations of the world, namely the Egyptians, and they give you wealth. And then you come out and you build a house of God using that wealth and the Spirit gives you the power to build the house of God. Now, that was the order of things in the Exodus, and that's the order of things when they came back from Babylon. See? Verse 5 again. As for the promise I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. There are a lot of things missing in there, so let's fill them in. As for the promise made you when you came out of Egypt, the promise was that you would worship me. To worship me, you built a house of God. To build a house of God, you had the Holy Spirit working with Bezalel and Aholiab to build it. And so now I'm telling you to build a house of God, and the promise is still valid. My spirit is abiding in your midst. And because my spirit is abiding in your midst, the new Bezalels and Aholiab will be able to build a house, and you will be able to worship. Do not fear. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Now... If you want to take this down, I'm going to give you a literal translation from the Hebrew, because this is not properly translated here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It is yet only a little while, not once more in a little while, or anything like once more, it is yet only a little while, and I am going to be shaking the heavens and the earth. It is yet only a little while, and I am going to be shaking the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. What the text does not imply is that there's only going to be one big shaking. It doesn't say once more and I will shake. The Hebrew is in what's called a participle mood, which always means a continuous action. And when this is cited in the New Testament, it's put into the present tense, which implies a continuous action of shaking. So the shaking is something which is going to start in a little while. In a little while, I'm going to start shaking the heavens and the earth. Now, when did he start shaking the heavens and the earth? Well, he started shaking the heavens and the earth at the first coming. So actually, we're about 400 years away from the when the heavens and the earth will really begin to shake. But he continues to shake all the way until the second coming. And Matthew 24 talks about this when it talks about the sun, moon, and the stars falling. Because that's the shaking of the heavens. Powers of the heavens fall. 
Remember, the sun, moon, and stars were given for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And so the sun, moon, and stars falling is a sign. It's not literal. It's a sign of the shaking of the powers of the heavens, angelic powers. The sun was caught up to heaven, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels against Lucifer and his, and Satan was cast out. That's the shaking of the heavens. And it continues. So he says, in a short while I'm going to start shaking the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. After all, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. The nations have it, but they only have it on loan from me. And so, since it's all mine, declares the Lord of hosts, I'm going to give it to you. And the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace. Now we'll look at that in a minute. Let's think about all the nations and how they're going to be shaken and brought in. This again is parallel to the Exodus, isn't it? The people went to the Egyptians and the Egyptian people were terrified. You would be too if all those plagues were coming on you. They were pretty bad. The water turned to blood. It didn't turn red. It turned to blood from everything we can tell. We have to take that literally. That's spooky enough. But one weird thing after another was happening, and the Egyptian people were terrified. And God told the Jews, go and ask. Your Bible may say borrow, but it doesn't say borrow in Hebrew. It says ask. They didn't borrow and not return. They asked for gifts and got them. Go and ask for all these nice things. And so the Egyptians, trying to buy off God and buy off these plagues, gave gold and silver and purple and other things to the people. And when they came out of Egypt, they had all these goods, and they used them to build the tabernacle, the house of God. Now, exactly the same thing is happening here. We read that initially when they were sent back to Palestine from Babylonia, they were given a certain amount of presents and gifts by the Persian emperor. We saw that last time as we read in Ezra. But now the prophecy is that the nations are going to continue to give wealth and money to rebuild the house of the Lord because God is going to shake them. And right away, just a couple of months later, there's a fulfillment of that, a little fulfillment. Because in the Old Testament, when you have a prophecy about the kingdom to come, there's always a little fulfillment right away and then a great big fulfillment in the New Testament. It's like the statement, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, then you find immediately that Isaiah goes into his new wife and she conceives and bears a son immediately. But the New Testament says that that points forward to the greater miracle of the virgin birth. Similarly here, this is actually talking primarily about the new covenant age and the temple which will be built then and how the nations will come into it. But there's a little bit of a fulfillment right away. And if you turn your Bible two pages over to Zechariah 6, you'll see it. Zechariah 6, verse 9. And let's make sure of something here. This vision takes place, according to Zechariah 1, verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius. And so this is four months later. From the 21st day of the 7th month to the 24th day of the 11th month. Four months later, here is a prophecy in Zechariah 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. So in the four months in between, a bunch of people have come in from Babylon. And let's notice what they bring with them. They bring some stuff that's going to be taken and take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. See, they brought a lot of gold and silver with them. So immediately there's a token fulfillment to encourage the people. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, he will branch out from where he is and he will build a temple of the Lord. See, the gold coming in is a sign that the temple will be built. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit on and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and a council or covenant of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will be a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Ham, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off in the nations will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts, there's that phrase, Lord of hosts again, has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. So, right away, the nations start to send gold and silver in. And there's a token fulfillment of this throughout the Old Covenant. But then when we get to the New Covenant, 
begins to be fulfilled with power. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, it says in verse 25, and unfortunately we can't take all the context in here because it ties in again. But starting in verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet a little while, and I will be shaking. Present tense, continuous shaking. Not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet a little while, etc., and that's the way you should read that, this expression, yet a little while, etc., denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So in general terms, the shaking is the shaking down of all the apostate kingdoms, and yet the kingdom of God remains because it cannot be shaken. It's built on rock. So, let's try to pull back now from these details and get an overall picture in Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua. Take courage, people, because I am with you. I'm still with you, and where God is, then the temple begins to form around him. We're going to look at that in just a minute in the New Testament and watch the temple form around Jesus Christ. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, don't think that that's null and void. Don't think that everything has changed. It hasn't. My spirit is still with you. You can still build the house of God. You can still have a central place of worship, which will be the center of your theocracy. My spirit is abiding in your midst. There will be other Bezalels in the holy abs. The house will be built and the culture will be built around the house. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of armies, in just a little while I'm going to start shaking the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I'm going to shake all the nations, those 70 nations. You just finished offering 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world. And now I'm going to shake them and bring them into the kingdom. And they're going to come to the house of God with all their gifts, and they're going to submit to the law of that house, which is a house of prayer. The house is defined as a house of prayer. They will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory. Remember when the house was built, the glory cloud came and filled it all the way up so that the people couldn't go in because it shone so bright. And he says, all these beautiful things will make a very shiny environment, and the house will be filled with glory. After all, the silver and gold are both mine. They belong to me, and I can do with them what I want. And the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You're worried about warfare, but don't. In time to come, I will give peace. Now, taken in literal terms, this particular house never was greater in glory. But then again, you do have a shadow token fulfillment. Because when Herod built the third temple, he did build a temple that was even bigger and more magnificent than the one built by Solomon. And so there's that token fulfillment in the Old Covenant. But the true or foundational fulfillment is in Jesus Christ, who is the greater temple. Now, to understand that, we need to take a look into the New Testament. So we're going to leave Haggai now and see how this prophesies the New Covenant. To do that, we look at John chapter 7. John 7, verse 2. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. In John's Gospel, it's always very important to notice what feast is going on when Jesus makes a certain speech. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, and the brothers were going up, but Jesus says he wouldn't go up. But then in verse 14, we find that Jesus did go up secretly. And verse 14 says, But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Remember, Feast of Tabernacles was a big Bible conference. And the Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? That doesn't mean he never learned anything. All the Jewish boys went to synagogue school. But Jesus hadn't been to seminary. That's what they mean. Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. Remember, all this talk about teaching ties into the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles was a Bible conference. 
He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered and said, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, one work, and you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of God may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? This refers back to the healing of a man on the Sabbath. Notice again, strong connection between the Sabbath and the Feast of Tabernacles. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers really do not know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know that where this man is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Jesus, therefore, cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come from myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus, therefore, said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I will go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, but shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not planning to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You shall seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now, on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes on me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm going to stop reading right there. This is what's important. On the last day, the great day of the feast, that's either the same day or one day after Haggai's prophecy, so it ties directly with it. Jesus cried out and said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, which is interesting because the scripture nowhere says that. There's no place in the Old Testament you can look to that says, From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So that's a paraphrase. That's a way Jesus has of collecting something which is taught in the Old Testament. But now, how and where is it taught? Again, to understand that, we have to understand the Feast of Tabernacles. So let me give it to you just in brief, because we're just about out of time. In Ezekiel 47... You have the vision of Ezekiel's temple, which is the New Covenant temple, and out of that temple flows all this water which flows out and heals the world. Now that's a picture, among other things, of the kingdom of God and of the church and of Jesus Christ. And out of him flows this water which feeds the world and restores the world to the Garden of Eden. It flows right down to where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Genesis 13, were just like the Garden of Eden. And then they were turned into salt. And then in Ezekiel 47, they were turned back into the Garden of Eden due to the influences proceeding from the throne of God. Because of the sacrifice being consummated in the temple, this water flows out. But now there's a parallel between God's house and those booths at the Feast of Tabernacles, isn't there? There's a parallel between God's tent and the tents that the individual people were to live in. And there's a parallel in Haggai between God's house, which is to be built first, and the houses, the paneled houses that the people were to live in, which were to be built second. Now, they had reversed the order. But Haggai doesn't say don't live in houses at all. You build God's house first, and then your house. And because of that parallel, just as life-giving water flows from Christ, so he can say, out of the Christian shall flow rivers of living water. Now, the only way to connect this with the Feast of Tabernacles is to see that parallel between God's house and our houses. In your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a house. These garments are the outer part of your house. And out of you flow living water if you're a Christian. And so you minister the word to other people. You speak to other people and help them in a derivative kind of way. 
The water flows from Christ to us and from us to other people. In this, he speaks of the Spirit. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, so we're still in an age of prophecy. Now, if you want one cross-reference for this, I'm going to have to stop here, is Isaiah 58, verse 11. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So just as the Garden of Eden is like the house of God, so the Garden of Eden is like the individual house of the person. And each person will be like a watered garden and a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now, that's an awful lot of stuff, isn't it? But we're not really finished with Haggai 2, so we'll review some of this next week and maybe have time for questions. But for now, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you've blessed us to live in an age in which your house is being built, not just in one place, but everywhere. We thank you that we live in an age in which we can approach you at any time and not only on Sabbath days. We ask that you would make us faithful to these privileges. Bless us now as we draw into your presence for special worship. Bless this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.